This podcast contains real talk about the mayhem of motherhood, along with a weekly medical mystery. Because all of these topics can be pretty graphic, and because we use explicit language, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Motherhood, Mayhem, and Medical Mysteries podcast. On this show, we are not attempting to solve the major medical mysteries of the world or tell you how to raise your kids. We are definitely not doctors or scientists of any kind. We are just two moms here to provide you with support, resources, and maybe a few laughs along the way. We do a lot of research and will definitely share the things we learn, but please talk to a professional if you have specific concerns about your experiences. Here's Miranda. She cannot read while riding in a car or she gets car sick. And that's Melanie. She loves yoga, also reading, and a big old glass of wine. Tonight, we are going to go... That was my attempt at the record scratch. It probably was not very good. But we are going to go back in time, Melanie. I hope that you're ready because we are going to imagine that we are both mothers yet again of itty bitty babies. Itty bitty babies. Oh, we're doing itty bitty babies. It's an itty bitty baby night. I'm so excited because you know I love an itty bitty baby. I love an itty bitty baby. I mean, at this point, I love an itty bitty baby as long as it doesn't live at my house. But, you know, I mean, that's just where I'm at in my yeah, life because it was so long ago. It was a long time ago. I, I think I'm going to love one as long as it doesn't keep me up all night. That's really I, I don't even mind the diapers. I will change a poopy diaper, but I just want to sleep. That's my that's my compromise. Yeah. Sleep is good. I mean, I never minded the diapers a whole lot either. I mean, I think we got all the way through all the itty bitty baby phases and only had like two or three really, really bad blowouts. I mean, nobody likes a blowout. Nobody wants that. <laughs> nobody oh nobody wants but, that. But don't but... you kind of miss those days sometimes when they're so snuggly and warm and you can just cuddle them and they don't back talk and they're not smart Alex yet? The only thing you have to worry about is like when they get into stuff, you know, because they they have a tendency to get into stuff. Yeah, they do. I have to tell you, in all honesty, I think that my entire like retrospective of having um, itty bitty baby was is sort of clouded by like how much anxiety I had that whole time. Oh, sure. And I mean, like, is he getting enough to eat? Mm -hmm. Is he getting enough to sleep? Am I using the right, am I using the right soap to wash him? Am I getting his hair rinsed off? Is he hitting all the milestones? Is he doing all the things he's supposed to do? Is he getting sick? (laughs) I feel like that's the question we ask ourselves more than anything. Is he getting sick? Yeah. Is this baby getting sick? I I feel like he might be getting sick. I don't mm-hmm. know. He kind of seems off. He's gotten a you tooth know? or he's getting sick or he's having a growth spurt. Yeah. Something's always going on with these itty bitties. There is a lot of, there's a lot going on. I mean, that's kind of the part of those first couple or few years that you're not really ready for is like every month is an entirely 
different landscape. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. they grow so quickly. And before you know it, they're pulling all of the recycling out of the cupboard and you turn around and the entire kitchen <laughs> is covered in cardboard. You know, I, I have a picture of Jonah that it, it's like I turned around, I was doing the dishes, I turned around and the entire floor is covered in cardboard boxes. Oh my gosh. I will say, I remember it's it's been a while back, but I was kind of, <laughs> I think it was our last Itty Bitty Baby episode, maybe, where you were talking about how you called 911 because Fisher fell off the bed. Yes, I did. I was panicked. <laughs> Yes. Well, I was thinking about it the other day and I had a similar situation. Uh Jonah didn't fall off of anything, but and I was trying to remember the specifics of it. I think it was like kind of a twofold situation. And I know that all of the parents that are listening right now have had situations like this come up. But at the time Jonah was born, we had a chihuahua. One of our two remaining chihuahuas. Yes. Yeah. And they were they were actually really sweet dogs. The first one was a little sweeter than the second Mm -hmm. one. So we had the second one. His name was Vino. Vino. He he I think at that point in time he was like nine or ten. So he was already pretty old when Jonah was born. And he did not like this child following him. Like Jonah just wanted to grab it. Sure. You know, yeah. and, and like he's crawling, he's not walking. So he's crawling and catching up with the dog. And <laughs> well, there were a couple situations where Vino nipped at Jonah and it broke the skin a couple times. Eee. And like as a parent of a child and also a pet that's a very stressful yeah situation because you know obviously your child comes first but also you've had this dog for 10 or 11 years yeah and it's like you can't blame the dog when they do that because the kid was like literally in their face terrorizing them so oh he would he would corner him like my little itty bitty baby who's just barely crawling has figured out how to get this little chihuahua into the corner of the cupboard right, in the kitchen. Right. So he has no escape. So it's like, no, I, I didn't blame the dog. Right. But then you kind of have this whole thing that you go through in your mind where you're like, oh my gosh, if somebody finds out that my dog bit my kid and I didn't do anything oh, gosh, about right. it, like We're there's right. this whole... Yeah. I don't know. Our brains are functioning on a different level. So I'm all panicked because this is the second time now that this dog has nipped at my child. You know, not fair to the dog that he's having to deal with it, but like also not fair to rehome a dog. Right, right. At the age of 10 or 11. Like that's messed up. And he was such a chunky little monkey. We didn't want to send Vino anywhere. He was so chunky and pitiful. He was like (laughs) the size of a guinea pig. He was like a potato with little legs. That's what sets up this day. I'm setting up this day for you. So the dog has bitten my child again. So I want to say we had, I had just given him a bath. So he's all clean and I'm getting him ready for the night. And I get out the Bactine because I'm going to clean the little cut dog bite, the Mm -hmm. little dog bite. I'm going to clean that real good because, you know, we don't want to end up at the doctor with an infected dog bite situation. So I can't even remember what I did. 
I probably left my child unattended on the changing table, which don't do that. But I turned to grab something like I didn't leave the room, but like I turned to grab something. I turn back around and he has the the cap is already off of the back teen. He has it in his mouth, the top of it, like a bottle. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like sucking. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. (laughs) So. So then my stress level was already 3,000. And now my child is drinking back teen. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So I'm pan I'm like sheer panic. Like the top just blows off. Like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I don't know why it was in a moment of panic because the smartest thing to do in any situation like that in my life is to call my mom. Mm -hmm. My mother is a retired nurse. Yeah, she knows every very logical. All these situations before. Very sensible. The reason I stock back teen in my house is because I grew up in a house where we had back teen. So she's familiar with the product. I should have called her. I did not call her. I called poison control. <laughs> I mean, I would have I done did. the same thing. I would have. It's not like you, you might have, have called nine one one. Actually, I would have looked for my SDS sheets and called. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Wait, my Hascom training is finally going to come in handy. Oh my gosh! I was just going to say the fact that you've worked in industrial settings is finally paying off. And, and all anyway, and all you do is call poison control. That's what it's going to tell you. You know, right? you call the manufacturer. That's like, call poison control. We don't want to be liable. Oh my gosh. So what did they say? You call poison control. I call poison control. It is very clear from the way that the woman is talking to me that I am at a level of excitement that she doesn't want to talk to, you know? Oh, yeah. So there's the whole, she's like telling me to calm down, which oh, does man. not work. <laughs> on anyone oh my goodness specifically not me oh my gosh so she's like i said okay here's what happened (laughs) blah 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 like and i don't i don't think i told her my dog bit my kid yeah you probably want to leave that detail out i want to leave that that part out like that like but i was in a panic so who knows (laughs) who knows oh my god so um (laughs) So she says to me in like this very annoyed voice, because this is what this woman does. Yeah, all day long. She listens to panicked parents all day long, and she has very clearly already classified this to this isn't really anything. Right, right, right. She's just got to get me to join her. And she says, well, how much of it did he drink? The whole bottle? And I'm like, oh, my God, no. Like, I was in the room, like, just a little bit. Yeah, I got it away and from And she him. goes, oh, honey, you don't have anything to worry about. He most likely isn't going to have any symptoms, but there's no no urgency to what needs to happen. And I'm like, really? Huh? And then you, like, you kind of like, don't believe yeah, him. Like, yeah, I, like, I would be, like, really skeptical. Like, uh, nothing. Like, are you sure? Nothing's going to happen. Are you He's sure? not going to grow, like, sure? an 11th finger. Everything was fine. Yeah. 
And thank goodness. And thank goodness everything was fine. Now, I will tell you, one time we were camping, and this was funny, because I grabbed, (laughs) talking about babies, I was walking down to the little bathhouse to go, like, you know, wash my face, brush my teeth, get all my stuff ready before I crawled into the tent for the night. So I just grabbed, like, a handful of all my stuff out of the diaper bag, or out of the, the duffel bag, and I make it down to the bathhouse, and I squeeze the toothpaste on my toothbrush go to put it in my mouth and I'm like wait a second this is not toothpaste and I looked and it was seriously like <laughs> it was doc- Dr. Bordeaux's butt paste <laughs> and oh. I, I had slathered my teeth in it <laughs> oh no you told me that oh so yeah call poison control for yourself <laughs> not as bad as back teen but still still pretty bad but oh my gosh thank goodness oh. jonah was okay thank goodness you jonah didn't was okay. tell the poison control lady that your dog attacked him and then he <laughs> drank a bottle of back teen. no i i must not have that probably would have raised another issue right? um oh my gosh. and the harassing of the chihuahua it's it tapered off as he got a little older and we did keep vino for the rest of his days yes. i, I want to say he was almost 15 when he finally left to go to the dog retirement community the, the so, big doggy retirement community in the sky i i'm sure that you all have had situations like this and can relate but i think oh my gosh. i think in season two we need to find some lady who works at poison control and bring her on the show to tell us these crazy stories where these panicked parents call in saying all the stuff oh man (laughs) i bet she's got some good material (laughs) okay miranda so we're talking about itty bitty babies itty bitty babies yes so we talked a long time ago way back in episode two about piaget's stages of development remember that Oh, yes, I do remember that. that. Piaget. Piaget. He's not French. Jean Piaget. I thought it would be fun if we kind of went back and looked at the very first stage, which is the sensory motor stage. You know, honestly, I feel like all I've talked about lately is school age kids and especially with back to school and stuff. So it feels like a good time to take a little break and talk about the itty bitties. So that's what I wanted to do, if that's all right with you. Of course. (laughs) Enlighten me about all about them. Let's do it. Piaget. Piaget. So do you remember when the sensory motor stage is? I I know you want me to, and I want me to, but I do not remember. We just don't. I know it's... It's very early. It is. And and that's okay. You know, that's that's what we're here to talk about. So sensory motor stage is birth until age two. So birth to 24 months. Oh, so those okay. first yeah. two years. And it's just jam-packed of amazing, fun, cognitive development, brain development, babies learning all kinds of things, doing all kinds of cool things, drinking all kinds of poison, and just living their best life. So cornering old dogs and <laughs> yeah, all the all the today, all the things. It's great. So Piaget named this the sensory motor stage because it's basically just like it sounds, senses and motor motor skills so 
That makes sense. All, yeah. all of those things. Yeah, it's all connected. So they're getting in tune with their senses, their five senses. They're learning how all of these things work. They're exploring their bodies and the world around them. And the the motor stage, of course, is the, the movement and motor coordination that comes along with learning how to drive themselves, basically. <laughs> drive themselves. They have to learn how to drive themselves. And meanwhile, they're driving their parents just absolutely crazy. So there are sub-stages of the sensory motor stage. And I kind of want to talk about those because within this one two-year stage, there's little milestones kind of along the way. And the best way to think about these is kind of as a ripple effect. So the very first things happen immediately kind of within the baby's own, I guess, their their conception of themselves or their perception of themselves. And then it kind of ripples okay. outward as they begin to learn more and more about their environment and the role that they play in their environment. So it's kind of moving from the inside out, if you think about it that way. Okay. Yeah. So the very, very, very first substage of sensory motor is the reflexes stage. And this is really their first month. And it's just reflexes. So, and and the main one is really that sucking reflex. So they're learning yeah. how to latch if you're breastfeeding or if you're bottle feeding, they're still latching onto the bottle. But they're, they're basically learning that sensation and that mechanism because that's all that right. really matters is just getting nutrients and being able to take in nutrients and grow. And you remember when, like, you could tell if your baby was hungry. Did you ever do, like, the root test, like, touching their cheek? Yeah, we didn't we didn't do too well on that and I never I like I remember trying it in the hospital the my doula had me try that mm-hmm. and Jonah was like quit poking my oh, face poking my basically face. <laughs> he was like overstimulated so, by it and like mm, no <laughs> but I do remember the idea of it and I've seen some videos of babies that just yeah like take off. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and this is kind of one of those kind of tests that you can do with your baby in that first month is to kind of touch their cheek. And if they turn their mouth toward it, it's called rooting. And the instinct there is, you know, they think your finger is like a nipple or something that's going to give them food and they're going to turn and they're going to go for it. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's their brain beginning to understand how that works. So um, you'll see a baby really little baby when they're starting to get hungry, you know, they may kind of root around is is what they say. And they're kind of wiggling their head all around and kind of looking for that nipple or looking for a bottle. So like a little kitten, like a little, like a little baby kitten. (laughs) So cute. (laughs) So from there, they move to the second sub stage, which is primary circular reactions. I don't know why these have such long names because I'll never be able to remember that. Primary circular reaction. You got it. Yes. Okay. And this is from like one to four months. And this is all about babies kind of learning how they can repeat things that they like or repeat things that they enjoy. And really what I think it boils down to is they're kind of learning that they're a separate being from their mom. You know, it's like, I think when babies are like that little and they're inside of the womb and then they're born, it's like they're kind of still a part of their mother very much. 
in the primary circular reaction, you know, I think about that word reaction, they may accidentally suck their thumb and be like, oh, I like that and then go back to it. Or, okay. or they may like the way uh, their hand feels against their face and they may touch their face and they, they like that sensation or the way that it feels. So they're, they're beginning to learn like, oh, I have a body and I can do these little motions and they feel good, <laughs> I guess. So we, what was it called again? <laughs> Primary circular reactions. So okay. they're coordinating sensation in new schemas. They're, they're understanding how these, these different things work. And again, the main thing is they may be touching their own body, touching primarily like their face and feeling how that feels. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Putting their hand in their mouth. Okay. Yeah. So, and like, you know, you think about a baby when they very first are learning how to suck their thumb or like realizing they have a hand, like it takes them a while to figure out like where it's at. And they're like, rah, yeah, rah. They're, they're pretty, <laughs> they're pretty clumsy right. at that, the, when they're first learning that I do remember that. And then the like slobbery little tiny hand. Yeah, then and, they get really slobbery yeah. after that. I remember we used to, when we swaddled Fisher, we would swaddle him with one fist up by his face because it seemed to kind of soothe him to have like a, a hand up by his face or something. So that's the primary circular. And then we move to secondary circular. So this is the next four month chunk from four to eight months. And at this, they actually begin to focus more on the world. So their, their eyesight at this point takes a big leap and they're able to see a lot more things. Remember when babies are born, they really have terrible, terrible vision. But yeah, I mean, they've lived aquatically for a very long time. <laughs> it's, it's weird out here. They're like, What is this world? But yeah, right around that like three, four, five month mark is when their vision kind of starts improving quite a bit and they can begin to focus on the world and see things and uh, they can repeat an action to trigger a response in the environment. So they may pick up a toy at this point and try to chew on it. Um, they're learning they can move things around them. Um, so those are the cutest months right there. You think so? Those are the cutest, the cutest itty bitty baby because like they're still itty bitty, yeah. but they like start to smile and stuff yeah. and like look at you. Yeah. They're really cute. They're like responding. They're hopefully sleeping better and... I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. And you're starting to like try out maybe some solid foods with them a little bit. And that could be fun. Like if you're feeding them all the different like little baby food pureed stuff and but they're not crawling around yet and getting into stuff where you feel like you exactly. have to watch them. You, they stay where you put yeah, them. That's you're right. I think this is probably these the are the days right here. <laughs> if you're a new parent. And you're in this phase, the second circle or whatever. Circle. <laughs> Enjoy. It's good. What comes next? So I just realized like primary circle, secondary circle, it's like moving out the ripples. I just realized that. So thank yeah. you for that. Um, okay. Next is coordination of reactions. So the circular reactions is more about cause and effect. The coordination of reaction is when they may have intentions and they can imitate the behavior of others and they can begin to do things to get the desired result that they want. So for example, they may start crawling around between eight and 12 months. If they really want their passy or like a toy that's across the floor, they're going to take some agency and maybe move 
you know, over there to get it or move something out of the way to get to what they want. So they're exploring the environment. They're imitating other people is another really common thing. And they may recognize objects as having certain qualities. So this is when kids, I think, start to have like a favorite thing, like between the ages of eight and 12. Like, oh, I really like this thing because it's soft or, oh, I really like this color. Like they may have like a preference for a certain toy or a certain thing. Now, those are going to change a lot. They're not going to stick with just one thing. But those preferences, I think, start to show up at this stage, too. Okay, now we're back to the circles. (laughs) The tertiary circular reactions, 12 to 18 months. I know. I I don't even understand. Tertiary circular reactions, 12 to 18 months. They begin a period of trial and error experimentation. And they may try different sounds or actions to try to get attention. They may do different things to try to get, again, what they want. So think about... At this point, your child is going to be knocking stuff off of the the tray in their high chair to get you to pick it up. That's what's happening here. This is what month to what month? Like a year to a year and a half. Oh, yeah. This is hard. This is this is hard times. They start to become a little assholish. Yeah, they're walking around, but kind of like unsteadily walking around, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning of it. And then they're grabbing everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're bossy little buggers, too. Like, this is where... Because they want what they want. Right. And they think that they can try out all these things to get you to give them what they want. Like, oh, I just have Mm -hmm. to keep crying or, oh, I have to, you know, I have to bite this other kid to get the toy that I want. Like all these things. They are persistent with this stuff, too. Yeah. Very persistent. Which, you know, think about it. If they're doing all of these little experiments, you know, that kind of experimentation takes a lot of persistence. So they're determined to get an answer, which is kind of remarkable. Okay. Then the last stage of the sensory motor phase is early representational or symbolic thought. So representational thought or symbolic thought, either one. But this is when they begin to understand language more and they're beginning to kind of attach language to the world around them. And they can come up with like symbols and words for the things around them. And it says they're moving toward understanding the world through mental operations rather than purely through their actions. So at this point, oh, okay, yeah, it's like they're thinking about it consciously instead of just falling around the world and fumbling around and seeing what happens as a result. If that makes sense, that no, that makes sense. That's that's interesting. So this is where they're using their brain to try to make you do what they want you to do. Yes, it's huge. They're they're beginning again. It's and it's all about language. And the other thing I learned here is with this phase, their brains are really primed to begin to understand the concept of numbers and counting. So one of the best things you can do with your kiddo if they're like 18 to 24 months, so like a year and a half to 2 years is really maximize their 
very early conceptual understanding of math. So what activities can you do with numbers or objects, you know, and, and you think about like, you know, the little, the towers that you build that have the numbers on them and the little cups yeah. that stack that have the numbers on the bottom. They begin to, begin to kind of, they're able to kind of recognize the order of operations here. Like it's not just random, but there's kind of a, a order and a purpose to things, if that makes sense. And those are some early math concepts. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's interesting. They're little sponges. They are. And so it's kind of a fun age to begin to work with them on that. And I know for Fisher, one of the things that we had a lot of success with was uh, baby signs and getting him to learn sign language at this stage. He wasn't very great at speaking yet, and a lot of kids aren't, but he could understand what he wanted and he could do a sign for it, whether it was milk or pancakes. He loved pancakes, so he made a little pancake with his hand. Like He would do all these little things for what he wanted, which was pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I've seen those videos of like babies that know all kinds of signs, which is really cool. It's really amazing. So this is really, again, rapid cognitive development. And what moves a baby out of the sensory motor stage, and we mentioned this in the second episode, is this idea of object permanence, which usually begins to come into play between six and eight months, but it's definitely mastered by the end of the sensory motor stage. And again, object permanence is this this thing where your baby knows that something is there even if they can't see it. So they know you're still there even if you walk out of the room. They know their passy is in this toy box even if they can't see it. They know if I put something in this box and I can't see it, I can dump the box out and find the thing I'm looking for. That's why they're always fascinated around between a year and two years with like putting things in and taking things out of something. It's object permanent. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's true. They really are. Yeah. My my friend's little baby, he's going through this right now and he's so cute, you know, because he just he loves putting stuff in his little box and then he dumps the box out and he sees it's all still there and then he puts it in the box and like, he dumps wow. it out. <laughs> right? And that's all it is. It's this object permanence thing going on. He's trying to figure that out, which is really cool. Okay, so let's talk about some activities that you can do with your baby during the sensory motor stage to kind of strengthen and bolster all of this awesome cognitive development that's going on. And then I'll mention kind of the milestones that you should expect to see your baby complete or master by the end of the sensory motor stage. So starting with activities, um, anything to do with object permanence is really, really great. So again, putting things in the box, dumping things out, peekaboo, huge, um, you know, putting the blanket over your head and pulling it down and showing your baby that you're still there is really good. And when your baby starts to figure out that they can play peekaboo with you, that's a really good transfer of learning and and they're beginning to kind of grasp the concept. The other thing that you see really cool with babies at this stage is there's so much sensory play. Again, sensory motor, sensory play. Sensory bins are really big right now on Pinterest. You can look and find like a million different ideas for sensory bins. Again, it goes back to a lot of the stuff we talked about with Montessori too. But you remember the little books that like Jonah, I'm sure had these little 
books where it was like pet the bunny and scratch the oh yeah the paper and you can feel all the different textures and stuff that's really good for babies to explore those different textures sounds colors lights all of these toys that you see are just helping them to connect with their senses their five senses. Uh, Language learning games are super great. And then we mentioned like stacking the blocks, putting things in order, number games where you're counting. All of these things are really good to do. All right. So let's talk real quick about your child at age two. What milestones should you expect to see? And maybe you can think about Jonah and, and his ability to do these things when he was that age. So at age two, your child should be able to start to run. So they're beginning to learn how to run. Yeah. Maybe in public places, usually. Away from you. (laughs) Away from you. (laughs) They can walk up and down stairs while holding on to the wall or a little handrail or holding on to your hand. Yeah. And we always had trouble with that one because he would go one foot one foot, one foot, one foot, mm. one foot, one foot. Yeah. And I don't, I think they want you to take step over step over Reciprocally. Step. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times kids will be able to walk up reciprocally before down reciprocally too. They can carry a large toy or several toys while walking. And yeah. that kind of goes back to, you know, they've got up there, they've made up their little mind of how they want things to be and they're going to move things around the way they want them to be. <laughs> Right. So if you all are reading between the lines, these children make messes. (laughs) Yes. Big messes. Which is the next one. Turning over containers and pouring out the contents. Yeah. Oh, remember that. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. building a tower and knocking it down. Knocking it down. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when Fisher was this age, you remember that giant like entertainment center that we had at our old house with Mm -hmm. the cabinets on the bottom. And I just shoved all of his toys in those cabinets. And it was great because he could just open the door, pull everything out. And then at the end of the night, I just shoved them all back in. It was great. I loved it. That was it. I mean, that cabinet had enough room for like three people in there. Yeah, it was pretty huge. It was pretty great. It was like that episode of Seinfeld where the people were visiting and they were sleeping in the drawers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have like. <laughs> could have had some stowaways in there. <laughs> Language skills. Your child should be able to point to things or pictures when they are named. So where's the elephant? Where's the okay. zebra? Where's the cow? They can do some of that. They should know the names of their parents, uh, their siblings, their body parts. You know, you remember like head, shoulders, knees, and toes, like teaching them where's your head? Yeah. Where's your belly? Where's your fingers? You know, you do all these things. They should be able to say a sentence with two to four words. Again, that's at the And like they just turned two, they should be able to kind of string together two words together, four words together. Okay. Even if it's just like, you know, me hungry or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) I want that. Yeah. Whatever. Or give me. Okay. Give me. Give me. That's That's one you get a lot. And then as they get older, it just turns into one word and it's why, 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 why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So great. So sh- that's a long phase, the the Y phase. Yeah, you're still not out of that one, are you? Mm-mm. Let me know. Let me know when that one subsides. Oof. Social emotional skills. So again, age two, 
your child should be able to copy others. So making the faces like you talked about, get excited around other kids, show growing independence, and show this one we love, increasing defiance. So remember, don't you do that. Don't touch that. Da, 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 da. And then they just look at you and they just do it anyway. <laughs> so great. They do it while looking at you. Those little those little assholes, man. They're little jerks at mm-hmm. that age. Oof. They really can be. Mm-mm-mm. They can also be really cute, but they're learning. It goes both ways. Yeah, they're learning the cause and effect. Uh, learning and thinking skills. They should be able to find things if they're hidden. Start short sorting shapes and colors. And follow two-part instructions, like drink your milk and give me the cup. So, you know, giving them... Oh. Okay. Or go in your room and get your shoes or put your toys in the basket and put the basket on the table, whatever. And so you should... That one's not going to (laughs) happen. When is that going to happen? Okay. So some things to be concerned about, you know, again, all kids are different and this isn't, you know, a cut and dry, black and white. They have to be doing these things by age two or there's something wrong. Remember, it's a blend. It's a watercolor. They may be really, really good at some things and still developing in some areas. But if you're noticing that maybe your child has some motor coordination problems, uh, maybe if they're not saying a two-word sentence or, or signing a two-word sentence, if they're not communicating with you, if they're not imitating things or following simple instructions, Instructions, and especially if they start to lose any of the skills they've previously gained, that's when we should be concerned. I'm sure we'll do some episodes in the future about autism, but this is usually around the age that autism uh, is diagnosed because there's so much back and forth, reciprocation, reaction. You think about a baby that's going to be understanding cause and effect and the influence that they have on on you as their parent and the world around them. If you're not seeing those experiments kind of taking place, that's a conversation to have with your doctor. You know, you could certainly be tested or kind of just checked out for for maybe some of those autism spectrum things that are going on, which again, super common. And I'm sure we'll do a later episode about autism. There's lots to cover there. But I would say this is like as the earliest, really, right? Yeah. Like two. 18 months is about the earliest that oh, they really? would test for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's our dive on the sensory motor stage. So much fun. Itty bitty babies. We love them, especially like you said in the, what was your favorite? The secondary circular <laughs> It's either the first or second <laughs> circle. I can't remember. There were lots of circles. It was like primary. Let me see here. To recap, reflexes is zero to one month. Prime. No, I don't like that phase. <laughs> that phase is terrible. That's just boring and you're not getting any sleep. Prime. No, it's, it's, it, I wish it was boring. It's like uh, just trying to survive. Things still hurt that shouldn't hurt. And I'm really tired. Yeah. Like, okay, I don't even ahead. know if you have your first poop postpartum <laughs> before that one's Stop over. <laughs> Primary. It's going to have to be a whole episode. <laughs> on just the poop. <laughs> Brace yourselves, ladies. Primary <laughs> circular reactions is one to four months. 
second okay i mean that's that's okay that like you're getting there the one to two months is iffy but the end of that maybe is getting fun secondary yeah. circular reactions four to eight months that's i think your okay favorite. like crawling is probably gonna happen somewhere in there though towards the end of that maybe towards the if end i remember maybe right. okay definitely probably happening in coordination of reactions eight to 12 months Oh, for sure. For sure. That's when they take off. And then it goes back to the circles. Tertiary circular reactions, 12 to 18 months. I mean, I don't know, Piaget. I kind of feel like we need to have a meeting about the names of these. It's a lot of circles. I'm kind of just swirling around. Early representational thought, 18 to 24 months. That's the last one. That just rolls right (laughs) off your tongue. Early representational thought. Maybe it sounded better in French when he said it. He's not French. (laughs) What was he, Swiss? Do they speak English? Do they speak French in Switzerland? (laughs) What do they speak? I don't know. Oh my gosh. Let's stop before we do some real damage here. Melanie, I just looked it up, and for your FYI, they speak German in Switzerland. Over 60% of the Swiss population speak German. So what that probably means is that Piaget had a word that was like 28 letters long for each of these stages, because that's what the Germans tend to do. It's like, here's this crazy abstract concept in like one 32 character word. They're really good at that. (laughs) They are really good. I respect it. I respect the heck out of it. Okay, but that's enough on (laughs) on the Swiss and the Germans. What are you telling us about tonight? What is your itty bitty baby topic? My itty bitty baby topic for this episode is RSV. What? Sound the alert. That's a really good one. Ever heard of it? Oh my gosh. I think everybody in the primary and secondary tertiary <laughs> circles of hell have heard of it. This is really right. common okay. for little babies. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, it is. But here's the thing. I'm going to tell you what it stands for because we all call it RSV. It is actually called Respiratory Syncytial Virus. RSV. Syncytial? Syncytial. Wow. So I see why we call it RSV. Yeah. Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is a common respiratory virus that usually causes mild cold-like symptoms. Now, I thought that this would be a good topic for this episode, one, because of the itty-bitty babies, and also because of the timing of this episode. So RSV, like most illnesses that are common, has a season to it. And RSV season starts in the fall and peaks in the winter. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that the timing and severity doesn't vary from year to year. But in general, the season starts in the fall and peaks in the winter. Now, most children who develop RSV start off with like normal cold symptoms. So like a decreased appetite kind of happens first. As moms, we know that Mm -hmm. that's real common. Like they all of a sudden don't want to eat anything. Then there's usually a cough one to three days later. And then after that, there's usually sneezing, a fever and wheezing, which is really an interesting. Oh, the wheezing. 
the cough first, then the sneezing, the fever, and the wheezing. Of course, in young infants, they can also be very irritable, which is hard to tell sometimes because a lot of times <laughs> they're really very irritable anyway. But they can be extra irritable and have like decreased activity so like they're kind of lethargic and and now yeah now was there a fever in there anywhere that you mentioned the fever doesn't come until after the cough and okay so the cough is first one to three days and then the sneezing and the fever and the wheezing later on okay gotcha because i remember i'm thinking again about all these different things that we've talked about we've talked about hand foot and mouth we've talked about strep throat and now rsv and as moms i think it's really important to be able to identify some of these symptoms and think about what's the probability of what my child's got going on. So didn't you teach us with strep throat, like there really isn't coughing with strep throat? Right. So right. coughing Typically not. is kind of, okay, we can rule out strep throat. Maybe it's a cold or God right. forbid RSV. Okay. Well, but here is an interesting fact. By the time children are two years old. So they're at the very end of the sensory motor phase. Almost all of them will have had RSV. Really? Now, when you say almost all, do you have a... Almost do you have all. A number I do not have a specific statistic, but the way that it's worded in here, like 95% would be my Jeez, guess. Me. Like almost everybody has already had. So is that true for so, Jonah? Did he have it by age two? I wouldn't. I wouldn't know because if you don't have severe symptoms, you're not going to get tested. It's just a cold. Mm. Well, Fisher definitely had it. We'll we'll get there. (laughs) So it typically causes, like I mentioned, um, congestion, cough, fever, sometimes a headache, but an itty bitty baby isn't going to be able to tell you that they have a headache. Like the symptoms of a common cold, basically, it is the symptoms of a common cold. Now, it's not only children that can be affected. Adults can also get it. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. The problem with RSV as compared to some other illnesses is that it's highly contagious and yet again spread through respiratory droplets. (laughs) Damn those Like the COVID, like the strep, it's the respiratory droplets. (laughs) And so they contain the virus when somebody coughs or sneezes and think back to the media coverage of COVID where they showed how far those can travel. Mm -hmm. But lots of testing has been done on this. And contrary to COVID, RSV droplets can survive up to six hours on surfaces, which they list doorknobs, keyboards, toys, and up to 30 minutes on unwashed hands. Hmm. Wow. So you can understand why it would go very quickly through daycare centers or schools. The big kicker comes in the virus. It's annoying and it's short-lived in healthy children. And like I said, a lot of times it's just going to be a cold. You're just going to think it's a cold. But it can really cause problems in infants and young children that were born prematurely. So preemies, parents of preemies have to be super careful about RSV. If children have heart disease or heart issues, like you 
you think about those babies that have to have the heart surgeries when they're very young, oh gosh, yeah. lung diseases, or certain types of issues with their immune system. So that's not to say that a healthy kid can't get it and have it cause severe issues. But for those vulnerable populations, we have to really take into account, you know, their vulnerability to it. Yeah. Now, preventing RSV is absolutely no different than preventing a common cold. So that's things like washing hands, wiping down common surfaces, using your Clorox wipes or whatever brand you prefer. If your kids get a cold, try to keep them away from younger siblings. Good luck with that. (laughs) And especially infants. So if it is winter or uh, fall, winter, early spring, and your friend wants to come over and they have a cold and you have an itty bitty baby, tell them maybe you'll see them next yeah, week. Just say or no. the week after. Yeah, just say no. Maybe, yeah, no, when you're feeling better. Yeah. We always talk about illnesses and and issues and then often talk about the antibiotics that can be used to treat them. Because RSV is a virus, antibiotics are absolutely not the issue. They actually won't even treat it. That's the case with all viruses, but specifically RSV, the only things to do are to provide plenty of fluids, like you're treating symptoms. So you're using a humidifier, those nose sucky things. Oh yeah, the nose Um, Frida. Mm -hmm. Nose nose Frida Frida. will make a huge (laughs) difference. Just don't use it without the spongy filter thing (laughs) because that's really gross. Ibuprofen, Tylenol, that kind of thing. Now, so you're just, you're treating symptoms. So when Fisher had it, we got like a nebulizer and we had to do okay. this like breathing treatment. Do you have anything right. about that? Well, this is the list that I'm on right now is just what you do if your kid has it and it's not severe. Like if oh, it's okay. severe, then you end up at the doctor and I'm sure that's where you got the nebulizer. Yeah. RSV can, of course, be very dangerous in younger children. And I mentioned the ones with underlying conditions. If your child has signs of dehydration, they're doing that like rapid breathing mm-hmm. or it seems like it's very hard Labored for them to breathing. Yeah. If they're very irritable or very, very lethargic, mm-hmm. if they have a high fever and they look real bad, then you're definitely going to want to have them seen um, either at a doctor. I remember too, when Fisher had it, going back to the breathing, it was so hard for him to eat because he couldn't breathe through his little nose. And so it was like, Mm -hmm. he would try to like drink some milk and then he would be like panting basically because yeah, I do remember that. That's bad. Right. Like they're, they're so stopped up and it just wears them out, you know, to even try to, to drink. And so it's like you said, now they're at risk for dehydration because they can't, they can't drink. They can't like suckle. They can't like they drink because they have their noses completely stopped mm-hmm. up like this mm-hmm. and it's hard to drink, mm-hmm. especially if you have to suck out of a bottle or or you're breastfeeding. Right. It's really hard to do that if your nose is completely stopped up. Right. Obviously, if you have any of those significant symptoms, you need to have them seen. I mean, I would say if you're a parent and you're worried about what's going on with your kid, have them seen no matter what, like mm-hmm. even if they don't meet all of the things on that checklist because peace of mind is very valuable when you have an itty bitty baby Mm -hmm. at home. 
Now, most people who get RSV, which we, you know, I mentioned almost everybody does get RSV. So most people will actually think it's a cold and they will get over it in like a week or two with no need for additional treatment. However, for those other folks that are vulnerable, it can turn into a very serious situation. So I thought this was interesting, and I'm going to mention this. In the U.S., RSV is the most common cause of bronchiolitis. You know about that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, about it sounds that. like your bronchial um, tubes are are inflamed, which I yes. think is like a sister to pneumonia, pretty much. Like your body's not pretty, able to pretty get much. any oxygen because so, everything's so inflamed. That's the inflammation in those little tiny airways that are all the way in the lungs. Yeah. So like deep within the lungs, those little tiny airways. So there's approximately 58,000 cases of that that have hospitalizations each year in the U.S. That's why they're hospitalized is because it causes that inflammation in those small airways. Now, RSV is estimated to cause about 14,000 deaths annually in the U.S., in adults over 65. Huh. So we always think about it with itty bitty with babies, babies. But there's a whole older population that is also very vulnerable. Very much at risk. I thought that this was a staggering statistic. Globally, RSV affects an estimated 64 million people each year. Wow. Yeah. So it's super, super common and over 160,000 deaths. So mm. that's that's a lot. Well, and that's it's a lot. super contagious too. So when it's out there, well, right, it's out there. Like everybody is gonna be getting it. Six hours, it stays on a doorknob. Good. Can yes. you imagine at certain places how many people touch a doorknob in, in six, six hours? hours? Right. Oh, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> if you're going into a store, and I always make fun of my coworker who uses paper towels to open the doors mm -hmm. after she washes her hands, but she might be on. Yeah. something when it's RSV season. Yeah. Now, you all might be wondering, because I know I was, as I was reading about this, I'm like, wow, this is like really significant. Like, what are we doing about that? You know, about this situation? They are and have been for years working on vaccines and different things to help prevent the RSV oh, from being such an issue. I didn't know that. There is a vaccine that is actually available for adults who are 60 or older. It must not, it's not safe for children, I, I'm guessing, from everything that I was reading. So, of course, you have to do like a benefit risk analysis with any vaccine. But this one is actually only on the market for adults who are 60 or older and those who meet certain criteria. So that would be probably people that have lung disease, COPD, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, there are a couple monoclonal monocolonial. I just made that up. It's it's not monocolonial. <laughs> it's monocolonial antibody products. And I want to say that monocolonial, I can't say it, monocolonial antibody products, there are some of those that came out during the pandemic. Okay. 
they were making these antibody treatments. So there are a couple of these that are available for infants and children who meet certain criteria. So this is just an antibody. This isn't a vaccine. Yeah. They're different creatures altogether, but the antibody is designed to protect infants and young children who are at an increased risk. It's administered as an intramuscular injection, which I thought was funny because we were talking about intramuscular injections on the strep episode. So that's a big old shot. Those are painful. Yeah, they get down in there. (laughs) So it provides protection for up to five months. So it's really just like a one season kind of Still though, that's pretty good. Yeah. So all infants that are younger than eight months who are born during or entering their first RSV season, if they meet the certain criteria, they should be given one of these antibody Mm. treatments. Mm. And it got into some really, really detailed, significant stuff. For the criteria, Um, you mean? Yeah, for well, for even just how the antibody products work, because there's two major ones and they both work differently. And one is recommended for one for the first season and one is recommended for another season. Hmm. Um, But essentially, the only folks who are going to even be considered for those are preemies. So the itty, itty, bitty, bitty, bitty babies, mm-hmm. infants who are six months or younger who have some type of condition, children that are younger than two with lung disease or congenital heart disease, Ooh. and then if they have weakened immune systems, neuromuscular disorders, or congenital anomalies that cause them to have trouble swallowing and clearing mucus secretions, which there's several conditions that cause that. Oh, sure. And then, of course, children who have very severe cystic fibrosis. Yeah, I was about to say CF has to fall into that category. It's a pretty small group, you know, I mean, of people, but they they do exist and they are continuing to do work on on a vaccine. You know, like I mentioned, vaccines, I know that topic can get very controversial, but it all comes down to the benefit risk analysis. Um, and, and everybody has to make those decisions on their own. But considering the number of deaths that RSV can lead to, mm-hmm. if you have a kid that is very susceptible, you would definitely want to talk with your healthcare provider. Right, right. And make sure you're getting, you know, the best thing that you're child needs because there can be some pretty substantial risky things you know that could happen like oh i mean kids die from rsv right so you have to take that into you you know you have to take that into consideration it it can be really Um, dangerous i thought that it was really wild that almost every child will have had it by the time they were two it's just you may not know you just might think it was a cold right i guess it's just such a spectrum of severity yeah and then it can be so dangerous to others it's wild It, it really is a broad spectrum of things. Yes. I, I have to tell you about when Fisher got it because <laughs> it was crazy. So he was, let me think, and, and I'll never forget it because it was Halloween and you... Oh, I do remember that. Remember? We were supposed to come trick-or-treating. Correct. And you and actually gave me your costume and Jonah's costume for Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. Remember? That's right. So that is right. I was so excited because these were like the cutest costumes and you gave them to us. So I 
I was going to be Tinkerbell and Fisher was going to be Peter Pan. And he made such a good Peter Pan because he has like the orange hair. And I was like so pumped. Well, then that week he started getting sick. And I'll tell you, and this is important because just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about daycares and hand, foot and mouth and all of these things. We had just started going to a daycare and he got it from daycare, of course, because, you know, everybody gets everything from daycare. And I remember they closed daycare down and said, there's RSV. These are the symptoms you need to look for, blah, blah, blah. So I'm home with him all excited to dress up like Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. And here comes the snot. It was bad. So I'm like, crap, here we go. So I took him to the doctor and the doctor was like, yep, this is RSV. I was so worried about it. We got the little nebulizer, which was like a little teddy bear. And we had to hold this little mask over Fisher's face and try to get him to sit still for 20 minutes, which was unthinkable when he was in the 20 minutes. sensory That's motor hilarious. stage wanting to run around <laughs> all over the house. So, but what was so funny about the fact that it was Halloween was the doctor had warned us how contagious this was. And he was like, absolutely do not have him around any kids at all. Like he has to be quarantined. So I was out on the front porch dressed up like Tinkerbell giving away the Halloween candy to all these little neighborhood hooligans and Fisher was like standing behind the glass screen door like staring at me in his Peter Pan costume. Smearing RSV <laughs> all, all over the, over door. the glass door <laughs> for, where for it would remain hours. for six hours. <laughs> oh, it was pitiful. He's stuck behind the bubble. It was terrible. You know what, though? It's a good thing that he was that age, like that Toward the end. Like a whole year Mm -hmm. older than he could have been. Yeah. So can you imagine if he had only been breastfeeding and he had been that snotty? Oh, gosh. Anyway, it's it's crazy. Like you said, it affects so many kids before age two. Chances are you're going to encounter it. The question is, how bad is it going to (laughs) be? Right. Like it very much has it has COVID vibes to me. Like, are you going to be deathly ill or are you not even going to know you have it? Yeah. Kind of roll the dice. Right. But anyway, I hope some of that information was helpful to you all on RSV. I definitely learned some things that I wasn't aware of. So keep an eye on those itty bitty babies. And if they get too snotty, have them checked out. (laughs) All right. What is our spotlight tonight? I know you've got a good one. Okay. Well, on this spotlight, we are going to hearken back to the very beginning of this episode. And our spotlight tonight is America's Poison Centers. Okay. It is actually a nonprofit 501c yada yada. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I started looking into it. So America's Poison Centers represents 55 poison centers across the country. And through their national helpline, so these are the people that I call. Wait, no way. And their their website, which I'm going to tell you in a minute, they provide all Americans expert advice and are available 24-7-365 at no cost. They 
also maintain the National Poison Data System, or the NPDS, which is our nation's only real-time poisoning data surveillance system. Their mission includes having all of the poison centers in the U.S. have a national accreditation, professional certification. They provide continuing education to all of their staff and then actionable real-time data surveillance, as well as public awareness and education. Their website's actually really cool. It has all kinds of information on it about all sorts of different poisons or things that you should keep an eye on. They are in partnership with the CDC and the FDA. So they're in cahoots. The website is poisonhelp.org. Okay. And then they also have the National Poison Helpline. Now, I say this is this is the national number, but you will be directed to whichever poison center is closest to you. So it's like a network and a dispatch kind of situation. And the National Poison Helpline is 800-222-1222. If you like what you hear from us, be sure to follow our show. And if you really like us, you can leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We want to be friends with you. Connect with us on social media by following at Mother Mayhem Podcast or email us directly at Mother Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com.